Let's read now from Mark chapter 10, verses through 31. He was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said back to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and began to say to him, see, we've left everything. I'm sorry. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first this is the word of the lord well as you'll see in the bulletin i've called this sermon the good life because this is what the rich young ruler is after good Teacher, what must I do to inherit this good life, this life eternal? And this is the question that he asks, and this is the question that we have not stopped asking ever since. What is the good life, and how do I get it? Does the good life come from more money? Does it come from a bigger family? Does it come only in Fiji, or could it come in Owasso? Is the good life about being happy and healthy and able? Or is there a good life for those who live in poverty or with disability? The sermon was a part of a, a sermon series I preached last semester at TU, and they have different visions of the good life set before them. The good life is lived by someone with intelligence, someone who is successful, someone who is in love, someone who is noticed, 
someone who has an impactful career, someone who lives in a trendy house or in a cool city, and who only shops at Whole Foods. But is that really the good life? Um, since I preached this sermon, I've, I've been impacted by a lady who attends Christ Presbyterian. Her name is Jenna Clausen. And I spoke with her last week and had a great conversation about her article that she published debating someone, and it kind of went viral for a while. She's lived with muscular dystrophy her whole life. She walks into a room and you notice her. And in this article, she calls into question the good life as you and I may envision it. She says this, I've moved around in Christian circles for a long time. The way we pray about health-related things reveals a lot. We testify to being blessed and to God being good when life feels pleasant and beautiful. But scroll social media with me. Wonder what kind of blessed I am when that perfect family mountain climbing trip is wholly inaccessible. Wonder whether God is also good to me, the woman at home, exhausted just by the thought of leaving. Or is he only good to the woman who dresses up, goes out, looks flawless in that picture? Imagine for a moment a, a snapshot photo of me leaning against my husband to manage the single step to my friend's front door. Imagine my bruised knees and bruised ego from that single step. And ask God with me if he is still good. Let me assure you, she says, I have found the good life. The good life is the one firmly fixed within a good story told by a good God about a good world that is broken now, but not broken forever. The good life is to know God and your place in his story and to cling tightly to it and to watch closely as it accounts for every hardship, every darkness, and every body. The material things that you possess, whatever body, circumstance, ability, or money, that cannot be the good life. It breaks, it's fragile, but the good life is not fragile. In short, the good life is to have Christ and Him alone. Here's what I want you to take away this morning, and this is the two points that I've, I've mapped out. The good life is found in Jesus and our discipleship to him. And what this passage teaches is that there's a cost to that and that there's a benefit of that. And so those are the two points. Our discipleship to Jesus has a cost, giving him everything, but it has a great reward, receiving back a hundredfold. And so let's look at the cost. So this rich young man walks in and asks a question. He kneels before him, showing Jesus proper reverence for a rabbi he was very genuinely asking, unlike the Pharisees who would often just try to stump him, very genuinely asking, what must I do to inherit this good, eternal life? And Jesus, if you notice, he could have spelled it out for him. Um, throughout his Gospels, he spells out that answer all the time. Um, even at the beginning of Mark, he spells out the, the gospel is the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe, and you may have life eternal. 
Um, speaking in John 3 to Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes and asks him the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he pulls back to the desert and says, hey, remember when Moses, standing there, held up a bronze serpent, and the command was, look at the serpent, and you will live. So too, I will be held up. Look and believe, and you will live. He maps it out various uh, amounts of times, all throughout the Gospels. But here he doesn't. He does not answer him directly. Instead, he swerves, and he asks, why do you call me good? And so as we start this morning and we look at this pretty challenging passage, maybe let's ask ourselves, do you call him good? And when I hear the word good, my mind goes to a bunch of vague places, and so I want to pin down what, I, what I'm describing and defining as good. And I want to use a, a, a chart if you have that up there. Um, in Andy Crouch's book, Strong and Weak, he uses this chart that I've adapted to help us understand how you, walking in this morning, view Jesus. Um, and he gives this kind of quadrant, and he says the goodness, here, here, here's how Andy Crouch defines the goodness of Jesus. He is both compassionate, he is merciful, he is gracious, and he's also truthful and firm and just. Um, as I pray every week at RUF and as I pray this morning, He is the God who both comforts those who've walked in disrupted, and He's also the God who disrupts those who've come into comfortable, because He's good, and He's kind. He's lamb, and He's lion. But if you only think of Him as truthful, firm, just, He's going to say the hard thing, and He, in your mind, has no gentleness no compassion, no meekness, that he's an authoritarian figure in your life. If you only think of him as compassionate and merciful and gracious, he's the lamb. And I don't need to listen to anything that he says, but he's just a kind guy. Then he's indulgent. And if he's neither compassionate and merciful and truthful and firm, then he is absent. So do you call him good? Because here's a conviction that I hold about our discipleship to Jesus, and it, this is really the summary of the story of Jesus' encounter with this rich man, that those who view Jesus merely as useful, like this man, will inevitably walk away. But those who view Jesus as good will remain forever. You know, last summer I, I bought a house, and I don't know what sort of training you have to, to go through to become a notary, um, but I had to go into the bank and I had to sign a bunch of paperwork, and there was that person, and they you know, stamped their rubber stamp of approval on the documents that I signed, um, just standing by, watching what I'm doing, and stamping their approval. Um, Jesus is not just a notary. You know, watching us live our life however we choose, and he putting his rubber stamp, he is much kinder than that. He's good. So Jesus encounters this man, encounters us this morning, and exposes our heart posture. Why do we call him good? 
And then he continues on. He says, you know, you know the commandments, and he'll go off to rattle a list. But the reality is what Jesus is doing, and he's, he's catching this man in his act. This guy's just wanting Jesus to be a notary. He just wants Jesus to sign off on what he's done and to tell him if there's anything else that he needs to do. This man has no desire to be with Jesus. This man has no desire to love and to hope and to walk with Jesus, who is the only way to inherit eternal life. And that's the irony. This man wonders what he needs to do to receive eternal life, and the answer is a person and it's right in front of him. But he has no desire to be with Jesus. He just wants to use Jesus. Tell me what to do. I've heard you talking about this good life. Just tell me what I need to get from you. And so Jesus actually plays his game, and he goes through the Ten Commandments. And he says, and the rich young man says back to him, you know, I've kept these from my youth. And we might think that this, this man's a fool, that he's lying, he's been deceived, or possibly at worst, he's just trying to impress Jesus. But I don't want to move too quickly to that conclusion because here's the thing. Um, using this man's category for sin in the law, he actually might believe that he's been living a sinless life. Um, under his categories, he actually may have been blameless. You know, many faithful Jews and Jewish leaders like him actually were sinless under their guise. You know, the Apostle Paul, who was a really faithful Jew, mentions in one of his letters that under the law he was blameless. That's because for the Jew, they had a shallow misunderstanding of the law. What do I mean? Um, there's a book by uh, Robert Mulholland about discipleship. It's called Invitation to a Journey. And in this book, he talks about four layers of sins. The first layer of sin is what we describe as explicit sins. These are the Ten Commandments. This is very clear. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. These are clear violations to the law of God. Now, underneath this layer are what he describes as conscious sins. This is, they're clear in Scripture. Do not do this. But culturally, it's acceptable. And so we do it. Um, like, I don't know, gossiping, talking bad on people, white lies, boasting in ourselves, being selfishly ambitious. Very explicit. But it's all right. It's culturally acceptable. That's conscious sins. Now, underneath conscious sins, he says, is layer three. And these are what he describes as unconscious sins. This is sins of motivation. This is doing a good thing for the wrong reason. That's like me coming up on Wednesday night at RUF Large Group and preaching a, the gospel. This is a good thing. But doing it actually so I can look at them and watch them take notes and be like, man, I am awesome. I'm using them to give me some sort of meaning and fulfillment. Or I've talked to a friend about this, um, maybe doing the dishes not to serve your wife, but so that your wife will then see that and put the kids down for bed that night. I've just, I've never done that. But as I was thinking about examples, I had a friend who's unconsciously sins quite a bit. And um, so unconscious sins, doing a good thing for the wrong reason. And then underneath this, is the fourth layer. And if you've read The like, Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, this is what Tim Keller's book is all about. 
what he describes as, what, what Robert Mulholland describes as these faulty trust structures. These are wrongful attachments. These are our heart gets pulled away and looks to something else for happiness, for fulfillment. You know, we think we need these things to live a happy, peaceful life, but the reality is what we look to to give us life actually end up sabotaging us and killing us because they make us more self-obsessed. They make us more inward. These are counterfeit gods. So the reality is this rich young man walks towards Jesus and very likely has actually steered clear of explicit sins and conscious sins because they've created a whole system to avoid the world and the culture of the world so that they do not sin like the rest of those pagans. And what Jesus is getting at is he's poking at his unconscious sins. He's getting at his faulty trust structures. He gets to the deep layered stuff in this man's life and he does it because he's good. He does it because he's kind and he actually loves him. I love that in verse 21 where he says he looked at him and he loved him. He was kind. He was compassionate and loving and tender and he's firm and he's honest. And he gets at his heart and he says, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. That's the cost. And the man went away disheartened because the cost was too great. His faulty trust structure, the thing that he looked to at his life to make him most happy, most secure, was being exposed, and so he left. And the reality is that you know, it's not about giving to the poor, though a great thing. Um, Judas was obsessed with the poor. If you remember the scene where the, the, the woman anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, and he was upset with her because, hey, we could have used that money and given to the poor. Jesus lo- or Judas loved the poor, and he had no heart to follow Jesus. It's not about the poor. It's not about being rich, because let's be honest, if that's true, then we're all doomed. We're all doomed, every one of us. But it's not about being rich. Job was rich. Abraham was rich. Solomon was rich. It's not about being rich. It's about loving your riches. Have your riches become a faulty trust structure? Do you feel most secure? Do you feel most fulfillment? Do you feel most happy because of the material blessings that you've received? Or could you be like my friend Jenna and have none of this? Live with muscular dystrophy and still call him good. And we could ask that of a lot of things. Um, is your life good because your appearance? Is your life good because your status? Is your life good because your wisdom or intellect, like me? I'm kidding. Is your life good, whatever it is for you? What, where is your faulty trust structure? Jesus, in, the, in this encounter and in this passage for us now, 2,000 years later, is good and kind to ask us that. The creator of your heart and mine wants it all. You know, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for you're either going to hate one and love the other, you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and whatever. Jesus is after a heart. So the question is, will you give it to him? Because that's the cost. 
your heart. Seeing Jesus not just as useful, but as good. So what's the benefit? Um, This is the second point, the benefit of our discipleship. Uh, Sometimes um, Maggie and I get in fights. Um, The pattern for us is that, you know, we kind of counterbalance each other where she comes near and I run away. Um, So that works really well. Uh, she, she gets really sad and I get really mad. Um, there was a, the week that I preached the sermon last semester, um, there was a moment when I, I acted like an eight-year-old and I learned it from Micah and I just, I, um, or maybe, maybe, maybe Micah's learned it from me. Uh, oh, he's over there. I forgot that he's actually in here. Um, earmuffs, Micah. Um. So we're in a fight, and the fight's nearing its end, and she goes up to her, up to her, we, live in the, we, we sleep in the same bed. Oh, she goes up to our bed, and she lies down, and I guess it's time for me to follow, and I have to go. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to be near her. And so I go, and I put a pillow down between us. <laughs> Chris, don't you laugh. And then on top of that pillow, I put a pillow. And then on top of that one, I put a pillow. And I created a barrier between her and I. I did this. This is is true. I didn't want anything to do with her. I sat on my side of the bed, and all I wanted was to be right. In fact, what I really wanted was for her to see how wrong she was and how right I am. And you know what that felt like? It felt terrible. It felt really isolating. It weighed me down. It got me nowhere. You know, as I sat there angry, sat there angry there's no way I'm giving her my heart. She's not good. She's just an authoritarian wife. And it was impossible for me to get out of that place. In fact, I'd say... It was as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle for me to get out of that place. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. And as minutes passed, my heart became softer. And I limped in with the world's weakest apology you could imagine. But an apology nonetheless, I put my hand across the stack of pillows And I said, I don't want to talk about it right now, but I love you, and I'm sorry. And in that moment of confession, um, I did slowly take the physical barrier away, but all the barriers in in my heart were broken down. And the benefit of that apology was tremendous. Everything about me changed. And we were reconciled. At least we were beginning to be. You know, the message of of Christianity is that because of the entrance of sin into this world, we are at enmity with a good God. We are devastated by sins. We are at odds with Him. We just want to be right. We just want to be left alone. And this creates a barrier. And stuck on this side of the bed, so to speak, 
we have nowhere else to turn but to ourselves, and so we look to our things and our possession and our self-made identity and our accomplishments and our wealth, and we look to all these things that the world right now spends trillions of dollars to help us with. And the Bible calls that self-made righteousness or self-righteousness. It's looking out into the world to use that to make us feel all right. And we do this because we're stuck on our side of the bed. We have no other option. The message of Christianity tells us that Jesus left the riches and the comfort of heaven to tear down this bridge of hostility that we have with God, to tear down this bridge of hostility that we have with God's people through his bloody death and miraculous resurrection. And we receive the good life through an impossible act that God makes possible. Heart repentance and true faith. This looks like the third and fourth layer stuff being exposed by the kindness of God, by a good God, where His truth and His mercy lead us to repentance. Expose our false pursuits towards these false trust structures and pulls us towards faith in Him, who is our only comfort in life and in death. God softens our heart until day by day till our last day on earth, we slowly loosen this grip that we have on our stuff and we receive the benefits of Christ. And so what is the benefit of our discipleship to Christ? The benefit is that you get God. You get the Father, you get the Son, you get the Holy Spirit, and you get a messy and a beautiful church. You get new brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children. You get God and His people. There was a moment several months ago that just brought all sorts of goosebumps. My wife and I were sitting, um, we do this this homeschool co-op right now, and this this mother walked in who's a single mother to, to, to her son, and just going, having a really rough go of it. And to her surprise, God's people in this moment surprised her and they came in and they gave just poured on balloons and flowers and gift cards and money and all this amazing stuff to tell her, hey, I see you and we're here for you. That's the messy and beautiful work of God's people. Loving one another, seeing one another, carrying the burdens with one another. So what is the benefit? We get God and his people. I I love this quote by Joy Davidman. He puts it this way. She puts it this way. The Christian does not go around all the time feeling guilty. For him, sin is a burden he can lay down, for he can admit it, repent, and receive forgiveness. It's the unfortunate creature who denies the existence of sin in general and his own in particular who must go on carrying it. The way to the good life consists in honest confession and repentance that can open our hearts to a good God. How easy it is. The only way to get rid of sin is to admit it. But why is this so hard, he asks. 
surely because it requires us letting go of our self-made righteousness, which is the very thing we do not like doing. But how can we have Christ's perfect robe of righteousness if we insist on wearing our own? We cannot. So what's the cost? We give Jesus every ounce of righteousness day by day that we so desperately want to hold on to, everything that we trust in, and what's the, what do we receive? We receive a righteousness that is not our own. We receive a God who looks and delights in a, in a sinful people, who's making us clean, and we receive a people to, to walk in the light with. You know, the Apostle Paul was someone who clung to his intellect, who clung to his status, the approval of his peers for this self-made righteousness, and then he met the risen Christ. And the cost was great, but the benefit was better. And he says in Philippians 3, I count now everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Um, I want to end with just two different short analogy images to speak to maybe two different types of people here. Um, first, there's a, there's a show called The Antique Roadshow um, where these people go around, I guess they're like professional pawn shop people, and they go around talking to people who think that they have something in their house that might be worth a lot. And there's an episode I heard about, I've never watched the show, um, there's an episode where they show up at this guy's house and this guy has a blanket. Um, he knew that like his great, great, great grandfather was the chief of some Native American tribe. And he had this blanket and he wanted to know what it was worth. And the pawn shop person walks in and he sees this blanket and the way that it's stitched together and immediately he knows, holy cow there's only like half a dozen of these things remaining today. What you have in your possession is worth millions. And he ends up buying the, 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 the blanket and it's now hanging in the British Museum of Art um, as one of only a few of these things remaining. Um, my, my, my first person I want to speak to is the person who's possibly just kind of put God on the side as a blanket on a couch that you otherwise, maybe you just like grown up in the tradition, but you've never actually known. This, this blanket here is the way to the good life. This, this blanket here, the God that's in your possession is good, and he's for you, and he's with you. Might you look at the blanket? Might you be covered by him? Might you find life in him? The second person I want to speak to is the person who's just kind of going through the mundane, mundane rhythms of your life. Maybe you're going through seasons, weeks, years of suffering or silence, waiting patiently and with hope. Maybe you're waiting to, to, to see, is there anything good going to come from this? Where are you at, God? Um, and I want to point our attention to this, this beautiful scene in The Great Divorce, which is C.S. Lewis's fictional book about heaven and hell, where these characters get on a bus and they arise and they go to heaven and interact with different people. 
And one of the people that they interact with, they get off the bus and, and here they are and they're standing and in the distance they see, they see this person who's surrounded by a great multitude of people, men, women, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. They're like, who is that person? What famous person is that? What have they done on earth? And the guide says, well, that's just Sarah Smith. She's just some ordinary person. And just so happened that every person that she interacted with on earth, man, they sure felt like they gained a new mother in their interaction with her. And here she is, just living this life, going through, waiting patiently, this enduring suffering, this mundane rhythms. And here she is, surrounded by a great host of witnesses, glorifying the risen Christ together. For you who are just waiting it out, hang on. Hang on. There's experiences and tastes of this good life now, but one day we will experience it forevermore as we're with our friend and our Lord and our Savior forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.